Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that gets really fired up thinking about the intersection between art and capitalism. No, I seriously do. (laughs) Anyway, I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 181. It's part two of two in a conversation with Christy and Chiara, board members of the Indie Sellers Guild, a nonprofit dedicated to providing education and support to all online creative indie sellers around the world. If you haven't listened to part one yet, you should, because there's a lot of really great information in that one. And today we'll be talking about reserves and how they make it even harder to survive as a small business selling on Etsy. And then they will tell us how we can support Etsy sellers and the Indie Sellers Guild. Before we jump into that, I told you we're going to be listening to some of the secondhand September, now in secondhand October. October. <laughs> we're going to be listening to some of those audio essays this month. And today we're going to listen to an audio essay from Angela. My name is Angela. I'm from Texas and my take might not be the one you're looking for, but I felt strongly that I needed to say it. I first started thrift shopping in the early two thousands when I was in high school. I won't get into it, but trust me, the memories are there, and they are good and bad. It was fun to play dress-up with old clothes. The fact that it was hard to find old clothes that fit me was decidedly less fun. I thrifted and visited garage sales on and off over the years, but it wasn't until around 2019 that my thrifting reached a fevered pitch. Let me lay the groundwork. I had recently watched The True Cost. Disgusted by my frequent forays to Forever 21 and Target for cheap and cute stuff, I vowed to go secondhand first, and I have to admit I felt morally superior about that choice. I was subscribed to maybe a dozen YouTube channels devoted to secondhand shopping. I got a contact high off of their hauls. It was so exciting to see what they found, and watching them unearth epic vintage pieces inevitably gave me an undeniable sense of FOMO. I became a mom in late 2018, and suddenly, the days of my 20s, those carefree, innumerable, underappreciated days of leisure and doing whatever I wanted were gone. So when I had the opportunity to take a day to myself out of the house, without the worry of watching my baby, I wanted to make the most of it with an activity guaranteed to light my brain up, like a dopamine-powered Christmas tree. And I was in the midst of rehabilitating myself from an unhealthy financial relationship to makeup and beauty. I'd spent the past few years deep in a beauty YouTube rabbit hole that enabled me into impulse buying more makeup than I could use up in multiple lifetimes. I happened to discover a channel that documented the creator's own struggles in this arena, and watching her snap herself out of this particular consumerist spell inspired me to do the same. When you take all these factors together, it adds up to something akin to transfer addiction. Instead of acquiring drugstore blushes and Dior foundation, I started spending my quote-unquote free days driving from thrift store to thrift store, scouring the racks, looking at everything, buying anything that caught my fancy, anything that I thought was cool. Only it really wasn't what I thought was cool. Or more accurately, it really wasn't stuff that I wanted to wear and own. It was just stuff 
based around the aesthetics favored by social media and the influencers I followed. They liked vintage knitwear, so I bought acrylic sweater vests. They liked grandma core, so I bought polyester pants with elasticated waists. They liked quirky knickknacks, so I bought cat figurines. Forgive the blasphemy, but I have never liked cats. I would spend entire days this way, and I'd come home to my husband and my child, laden with bags and bags of stuff I did not need. And just as it was easy come, it was also easy go. I could probably count on two hands the items I thrifted in that year that are still in my house today. I was in this dream state for a couple of years until 2021. Inspired by yet another social media source, I took account of all the things I'd thrifted over the past year. I was shocked by the number of wardrobe items alone, a number way, way over the quoted 70 articles of new clothing that the average American buys in a year. And that's when it hit me. I had thought I was so much better than those average Americans by buying secondhand. My sanctimony seemed to shelter me from the fact that I was over-consuming just as much, if not more, than I was when I was taking weekly trips to Forever 21. I'm still working on breaking this habit, in some ways, in big ways. It's much better now. I went a full year trying to stay out of thrift stores entirely. I didn't stick to it, but by the end, I found that my dreaded number had shrunk down to a tenth of its size. Nowadays, I only go to the thrift store with specific things on a list, acquiring items that fit present needs. And I can acknowledge that need isn't really the right word for it. I guess, in ruminating on this prompt, I have realized that secondhand shopping, or at least my relationship to it, is, in a word, imperfect. For me, choosing secondhand first is an important lifestyle choice, yes. But at the same time, I'd really love to hear more conversations about the social media commodification of virtue. Thank you so much, Angela, for starting a really important conversation. Um, and everything you just talked about is something that has been swirling around in my mind for quite a while now. I want to start by saying something really, really important here. Yes, we should opt to shop secondhand first as often as possible. There are plenty of clothes out there in the world already, most of them barely worn, and it's really imperative that we get the maximum use out of all of these things. But... We cannot replace our fast fashion overconsumption habit with shopping secondhand. And I think many of us know that now, and maybe we had some bumpy times along the way where we were doing that. And I think I still see a lot of that happening out there. Now that I also have to hang out on TikTok, um, I'm being exposed to even more people, and I'm seeing a lot of this behavior still. And no fault to anyone who's doing that because, you know, we've been trained to shop, okay? The other night I was laying in bed and I couldn't sleep, which is pretty normal. Although I will say, taking the magnesium, five stars, highly recommended, taking magnesium before bed, 
really helps me sleep in a way that nothing else ever has. So I recommend that. Um, I think I was just waiting for the magnesium to like get digested. And I was laying there and I was thinking like, wow, you know, in the 80s, which we've discussed here, the Reagan administration basically pulled all like home ec and industrial arts education out of schools and really wanted to focus on job training, right? Like skills that would make us good workers. And by doing that, uh, they took away our skill, our life skills, right? Like how to make food, how to grocery shop on a budget, how to repair clothing, how to make clothing, even just understanding how clothing is made, how to repair things around your house, how to build things, how to be comfortable using tools, all these really important things that are a part of life, right? And by doing that, they kind of took away our ability to do these things for ourselves. And so what it really did, and I'm not saying that this was intentional, but then again, it wouldn't surprise me if it were, uh, what it did was turn us all into really incredible consumers, right? Because if you don't know how to cook, you're going to eat every meal out, right? Or you're going to get those like meal kits, you know? Um, if you don't know how to repair your clothes, you're just going to buy new ones. Uh, if you don't know much about how clothing is made, you're not going to know what to look for. And if you don't know how to fix things around your house, you're either going to throw that stuff out and replace it or hire someone else to do it. And all of these things fuel our economy all while we're also learning job skills so we can participate in that economy as workers while we're also being great consumers. And yet, all that focus on turning us into workers that stripped us of so many of our life skills, we never learned our rights as workers. This is what I think about when I'm falling asleep at night. What do you think about? (laughs) Yeah, anyway, uh, we're this way for a reason, right? And we, man, it's like shopping is like baked into us, right? It's like so deep within us. It involves all kinds of untangling. And it's no wonder that we are prone to overconsuming. At the same time, we're all good people, right? And we care about things. We care about people. We care about our planet. We care about animals. And so we want to do the right thing, but we're also addicted to shopping, basically, whether we realize it or not. Shopping secondhand, shifting into that seems like a cure, but it's not, right? Because over-consuming secondhand stuff is still over-consuming stuff. And the gas we use driving around from store to store to buy more stuff has an impact. The shipping and packaging of all that stuff we bought secondhand online, that also has an impact. And the reality is that we have to do the work on ourselves to disconnect from this need for so much stuff. And that's not a glamorous story, is it? It certainly doesn't sell clothing, new or otherwise. And in fact, this idea that we just really need to buy less It's not the narrative of most of the sustainable fashion world right now. I see so many articles all the time. I get invited to so many conferences and panel discussions and whatnot about what is the future of sustainable fashion? The caveat every time this question is raised is that whatever the future is, it must involve people getting really wealthy off of continuing to sell us more stuff than we need whether 
That's the executives at a fast fashion brand selling us so-called recycled fabrics or the CEOs of ThreadUp and Poshmark. It's always about the shopping. The number of times I've had, I've heard shop your values, like buy things, keep buying things the same way you have, just buy them from different people. That's essentially what I hear and read over and over again. And I get concerned sometimes when I read all these articles all over the internet, especially like in fashion industry media, right? That are like, here's the future of sustainable fashion. It's clothes made out of peanuts. Okay, that's not a real thing, but like, I wouldn't be surprised if someone sent me an email about that tomorrow, that that's what they were working on. It's always like, here's the quick fix. And the great thing about the quick fix is nothing else has to change. We just all start wearing clothes made out of peanuts, but we can still buy lots of clothes all the time and only wear them a few times. And it's okay because now they're made of peanuts. It's like no big deal. Nobody asks the bigger question, which is like, okay, well, if we're going to start making clothes out of peanuts, then a lot of you know farmland is going to be used to grow peanuts that could be used to grow food. Probably the peanut plants need watering and you know, they need cultivating and harvesting and they need processing to turn them into clothing. I can't stop thinking about peanut butter right now. Actually, it's kind of making me hungry. Anyway, nobody asks those questions, right? It's just like, oh, we're all going to switch to clothes made out of peanuts. It's always about the shopping, right? How do we keep the shopping going? And there are a lot of, so many, so many people with a lot of money rely on us continuing to buy into this, that We don't have to change our habits. We don't need to work on ourselves. We just need to buy into what their quick fix is, right? And so if we as individuals buy into this so-called sustainable fashion, this future of fashion, where perhaps all clothes are made out of peanuts or corn or paper, who knows what they're going to try to sell us. They're already selling us clothes made out of plastic bottles. I didn't see that one coming. So perhaps clothes made out of peanuts are not far off in the future. Um, but when we buy into this, this promise of this like so-called sustainable fashion, this future of fashion, it means that we don't have to give up the shopping habit and they don't have to give up selling us more stuff than we need. Giving up the shopping habit involves very, very hard work on ourselves. And If we can skip that by just saying, oh, well, I only buy secondhand or I only buy sustainable brands or I only buy clothes made out of recycled fabrics or what have you, we also get that added boost of feeling really virtuous, right? Especially in comparison to all the Shein customers out there, like, oh, I'm up here doing all the best things and you're down there still shopping from Shein. And I I hate that. Uh, I hate looking down on people. I hate that we feel like that's okay. There are about 9 million things about social media that annoy me. I mean, I have to spend a lot of time on there, right? And there are easily 100 different things that I encounter on a daily basis out in the social media world as clothes horse that really bug me. And when I'm extra tired or burned out, it makes me want to just like go either scream at someone, like send them an audio message where I just scream random words at them, or maybe this is probably a better idea, though not great either, just go throw my phone in a river because it's just like, oh, why, right? This list of things that annoy me include people who DM, who DM me 
basically to Google answers for them. People who send me super long messages that take me like 20 minutes to respond to, including the research I need to do to get their answers. And then they never acknowledge receipt of my message. There's been a lot of that lately, really disheartening. Uh, How about companies who reach out saying that they're interested in working with me on sustainability projects, which I get really excited about, but then three emails deep, all this emotional labor and time invested into this conversation, they just reveal that they were actually looking for free marketing on my podcast. How about the brands who want access to my community but don't want to pay for it but are certainly happy to give me a discount code so I can also buy stuff from them? It's cool, guys. Uh, Or how about people who don't read the damn captions on my posts and then ask a question that is answered by the caption? These are just minor things, although in a really stressful day or when they've happened 20 or 30 or 40 times in one day can make me feel like screaming, but they're just annoying, right? That's that's all it is, you know? I will tell you that nothing annoys me more. Maybe annoy is not even the right word because I'm talking straight up nails on a chalkboard feeling here. Nothing annoys me more than when people respond to a post with something like, I haven't bought new clothes since high school and now I'm 107 years old, or I can't even imagine buying 70 garments in one year. What is wrong with people? Or I sew all of my clothes and I can't understand why everyone else can't too. I don't think people mean to come across that way, but it it's hurtful. It's hurtful to me as someone who has had to deal with my own consumption habits and is doing all that work alongside all of you. It's hurtful to everybody else who reads those comments and wonders why they can't measure up, why they can't be that virtuous. That kind of... kind of feelings that come out of reading that kind of stuff when you are just trying so hard and can't get there and don't know how to sew or have bought new clothes every every year of your life. Uh, those kinds of things make you feel like you should just give up, that maybe you're not good enough to be a part of this. And that that is one of the reasons those kinds of comments really grind my gears. That kind of quasi-virtuousness just kills me because we're all just people out here doing our best. And you know what? It is so hard sometimes. I mean, I am literally wearing underwear that I bought five years ago because I can't afford to buy underwear from any of these so-called sustainable brands out there. And I also know that they're not really that great when I look into them. So I've opted instead to wear pilly faded underwear until they disintegrate into dust. I've had to let go of that fear that I will be in a car accident and the people at the hospital will judge me by my underwear, which, by the way, I don't think happens. (laughs) I don't know. If you work in an emergency room and it's, in fact, you all do get horrified by gross underwear, let me know. (laughs) Anyway, here's the thing. No one gets extra credit points from me when they show up to shame others with their virtuousness. It reminds me of dieting, okay? And I'm going to be really honest here. I've been dealing with an eating disorder since I was a teenager. I didn't think it was an eating disorder for decades because everyone else around me was doing the same thing. 
it was almost competitive to see how little one could eat and judge others when they gave in and actually had a full-ass meal. The less you ate, the more virtuous you were. Like, I could feel my body filling with the fuel, the glow of superiority, you know? Conversely, when I almost fainted and needed to eat some food, I felt shameful, right? This is not unlike the way we talk about slow fashion, sustainable fashion, and our participation in it. That's why we need to be better, right? We need to be better towards one another. Imagine feeling superior because you only had an apple and a Diet Coke for lunch while your friend had protein and vegetables and probably felt a lot better physically than you have in months. Imagine at the same time feeling superior to someone who needed new clothes and bought them on Shein. Like, what? I can't help but see a lot of the fallacies of the sustainable fashion world and the way we communicate sometimes as diet culture with a rebrand. And here's the thing. Think about it. If you only buy secondhand, you're doing better than others. Tell me how that isn't different from only drinking Diet Coke or only eating snack wells. Instead, you should be unpacking why you need to switch your shopping behavior and then working to change up your consumption habits. But diet culture sells the idea of a quick fix. Cut out carbs, only eat cabbage. Seriously, my mom did that cabbage soup diet when I was a kid. Remember how our whole house smelled and how cranky she was. You could switch to diet soda or take this pill, give up fat, only eat fruit, blah, 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 blah. Diet culture sells that quick fix and it is so wildly profitable for so many people. And this same quick fix to sustainability line of thinking is also very financially lucrative too. Yes, there is profit to be made in making people feel better than others. Brands leverage that shit to get you to buy stuff. With luxury brands, it's the idea of economic superiority, right? Like, I have this thing that most people can't afford. Just saying that out loud, that is so ridiculous. In the realm of sustainable fashion, it's the idea of superior virtue. The idea of a conscious collection, trust me, that name was chosen very strategically because it is H&M's way of subtly telling you that buying stuff from that collection makes you more conscious than the rest of the unconscious masses. I don't have answers here, right? But I will say this. We have to skip the virtue, the thirst for virtue, and we have to stop using that as means of judging others and feeling superior. Listen, I know we all need a lot of dopamine hits every day, and in this world with where we are right now as I record this, man, it's hard to find them, right? We got to look for the dopamine elsewhere, right? We have to meet others where they are. If you haven't bought new clothes since 1923, well, congratulations. You picked well, your body never changed, and your lifestyle has remained consistent. 
The rest of us will be out here unpacking our relationship with stuff and shopping. We have needed new things. We have needed different clothes. We have needed different stuff. And we're just trying to figure out how to healthily, is that a word, healthily? It is now if it isn't. How to healthily have the things that we need and not buy more than that, right? And it is work because these we're talking about behavior patterns that have been hammered into our heads since we were like five years old in the Barbie section at Toys R Us, maybe four years old watching the Saturday morning cartoons. Heck, it might, maybe it goes back to being like two or three and getting presents at Christmas. I don't know, but it's so deeply in there and it's a lot of work. There is no quick fix. Fortunately, we'll all be here to support one another as we do the work. We will come out on the other side of it with a new perspective that will lead to significant change in this world. And we will be doing it together. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycled clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriela Antonis is a visual artist, an upcycler, and a fashion designer. But Gabriela Antonis is also a feminist micro-business with radical ideals. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the world needs. If you find yourself in New Orleans, Louisiana, you may buy her ready-to-wear upcycle garments in person at the store Slow Down at 2855 Magazine Street. Slowdown NOLA only sells vintage and slow fashion from local designers, and Gabriella's garments are guaranteed to be in stock in person, but they also have a website, so you may support this woman-owned and run business from wherever you are. If you're interested in Gabriella making a one-of-a-kind garment for you, DM her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram at slowfashiongabriella. That's Gabriella with one L. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. 
Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at highenergyvintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. Last weekend marked seven years of marriage for Dustin and me. And while we were kind of like, should we do something for our anniversary since, you know, like we're moving in a few months and money is kind of tight and we definitely the state of the world? Like, should we be out celebrating our anniversary? Like, you know, all of these conversations were had over and over again. But ultimately, we realized that we should do something because we spend most of our time working these days and we love each other and we deserve to have downtime, right? So we planned a fun weekend in Dallas, which is about a, I don't know, like a three and a half hour drive from Austin. 
Okay, so one thing did go awry right out of the gate, which was that we were going to go in our RV, right? Which I was really excited about. For one, it has the most comfortable bed ever. And two, it's like really cost effective because it's obviously cheaper to stay in a campground or an RV park than it is to stay in a hotel. And we can cook all of our meals in there, right? So I had all the meals planned, all the food packed up, all of our clothes were in there, everything else we were going to need. And we're getting ready to leave. And Dustin's like, something something weird is is going on. Like all these things aren't working right. Well, very long and complicated story short, it turned out that there was a dead rat in the engine of our RV that broke this really important belt that connects multiple systems. And so Dustin went out and got the belt and then he tried to replace it, but it just like didn't have quite the right tools. And then we were sort of I don't know. I've been like really struggling with my mental health the past few weeks. So I was just sort of laying on the couch, like kind of catatonic with despair and sort of exhausted. And he came in and we tried to figure it out. We decided, okay, we would leave the next day and we would stay in a hotel. And we did that and it was super fun. And I'm so glad we did it. It was the break that I needed. And I got to hang out with my favorite person the whole time. And that was awesome too. So we finally made the pilgrimage to South Fork Ranch, where the outdoor scenes of the 70s and 80s primetime soap opera Dallas were filmed. Dallas, the show, is a big deal in our household. Um, I remember my mom watching it when I was a kid. Um, and of course, I didn't understand any of it, but she would let me stay up and watch it with her on Friday nights. And then in the dawn of the Netflix era, when you would get a DVD in the mail, I was getting the Dallas DVDs and watching them on my own. And I told Dustin about this when we first started dating. I was like, oh, have you ever watched Dallas? You know, I like love that show and there's really amazing style in it. And like the plot is so over the top and ridiculous. And so we started watching it and we have watched all of it. And there are many seasons, many episodes. This is back when, you know, a show would have like 30 episodes a year or more. Many, many hours have been spent watching Dallas, especially because we've watched it in its entirety like three or four times now. So we had to go to South Fork. We also went thrifting. We ate some really amazing Taiwanese food. We drove around and took photos of really cool mid-century architecture. Dallas, Dallas has so many cool buildings, especially if you're into taking pictures of mid-century architecture, which we are. Um, we visited the site where JFK was assassinated, and that was weird. And we went to the new Meow Wolf experience. It's called The Real Unreal. And it's this is the weird part. It's at a mall outside of Dallas called Grapevine Mills. Some of you are familiar with the term meow wolf and others are not. So let's steal the Wikipedia description. Meow Wolf is an American arts and entertainment company that creates large-scale interactive and immersive art installations. Wow, that sounds really dry, but I mean, it is accurate. Meow Wolf actually began as a sort of loose arts collective in the early 2010s in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Some might have even called the group anarchic, right? They pulled their money and they rented out an empty hair salon using that space to talk, brainstorm ideas, work on projects, have sleepovers, really just be a community. They held dances at the VFW. They doused themselves in glitter and had monster battles downtown. They worked on all kinds of cool stuff, but ultimately it was really just this like 
hub for creative young people who felt disenfranchised by Santa Fe and by modern life and, you know, by the world. Community was really the core of it all. And, you know, over time, a core group of leaders sort of emerged, but it was really, it was this bigger group as well. The core group consisted of Vince Kalubek, and I'm maybe going to butcher his name like a thousand times, and I apologize in advance. He wasn't really much of an artist, but he loved hanging out around creative people, and he was definitely like a go-getter. Then there was Sean Diani, a RISD graduate who had moved to Santa Fe for a job and was definitely feeling lonely until, you know, he found the Meow Wolf crew, which is a feeling I understand so well. Um, There was Katie Kennedy, an artist whose work, according to the New York Times magazine, teeters on the boundary between the beautiful and the grotesque. Uh, There was Matt King, a painter. Um, There was goggle-wearing Benji Geary, Emily Montoya, and Corvus Brinkerhoff. Throughout this segment, yes, this is a whole segment we just transitioned into, I'm going to be citing several sources, but the one that I recommend you all read because it's just so comprehensive is Rachel Monroe's 2019 piece for the New York Times Magazine, Can an Art Collective Become the Disney of the Experience Economy? From the very beginning of Meow Wolf, there is this tension amongst the group around what place money has in the whole equation. Like, what are the long-term goals of Meow Wolf? And are goals even necessary? Kalubek and Brinkerhoff felt that growth and some semblance of financial success should be part of the plan. Everybody else was kind of like, I don't know, can't we just make art? And at the same time, they all felt both part of the art world and kind of rejected by it because they weren't an art gallery, right? What they were doing couldn't be commodified, could it? How did it fit into the art world? It, it didn't seem like it did. And Katie Kennedy told Rachel Monroe in 2019, we were frustrated by lack of access to consistent opportunity and to agency. We work collectively. We make things you can't buy that you can't really document. And that's, that's the thing about working as an artist in this century. You have a few options if you want to make a living as an artist, right? You can sell your work via galleries, which means painting, sculpture, things that people can buy and keep, right? Um, You could sell your work on your own at markets. Once again, it has to be stuff that you can sell. You could sell it on, you know, like you could sell it at markets, on Etsy, on Instagram, et cetera. Maybe you could even create lines of product out of it, like stickers and pins and t-shirts. And we definitely have seen that happen, right? Or, which a lot of my friends have ended up having to do, you can become a commercial artist selling your talent to the advertising agency or retailers. For Meow Wolf, it was like, how do you sell an experience? And furthermore, how do you sell an experience that was created collectively by a large group of people? Well, Meow Wolf was invited to create an immersive art installation at Santa Fe's Center for Contemporary Arts. They raised $50,000 to build what they called the Do Return, a two-story, 70-foot-long ship 
They raised that money primarily via Kickstarter. More than 100 artists worked on the project and none of them were paid. I mean, none of the artists of Meow Wolf at that point had ever been paid and they all worked other jobs to keep themselves fed and housed. But they put a lot of time and physical energy and creativity and really hard work into everything they did with Meow Wolf, especially the Do Return, their biggest project yet. But they're not paid, right? The thing is, visitors to the Do Return, and by the way, more than 25,000 people visited it, the visitors were asked to donate $10, and the group had amassed $125,000 from this. They didn't know what to do with it, so it was stuffed in a shoebox under Kedlubik's bed. No one knew what to do with it. Some members suggested that they just burn the money in like a big anti-capitalist bonfire. But others were already wondering if being paid for their work could be an option because they were already finding that they were working so hard, just being sapped of their creativity and energy. And for what? Because Lubeck was starting to think that there was a way to make a living off of this work, even if it wasn't the traditional art sold at a gallery route that was primarily available. And he was on to something there, because since the late 90s, there, ha- there has been and had been a lot of conversation about an emerging experience economy. The thinking behind this made sense. People had kind of maxed out on the amount of stuff they could buy, right? But they still wanted to spend money and feel good, get that dopamine, right? How could the economy as a whole continue to grow if we were already overshopped? And how could consumers as a whole be satisfied if there wasn't more stuff to buy or they didn't want to buy more stuff? Well, it turns out that we might have been overshopped in the 90s, but things were about to get even more shoppy and wasteful in this century, so don't worry, we all kept buying more stuff, right? Nonetheless, the experience economy argued that there was plenty of money to be made and jobs to be created by giving people experiences. You know, experiences like virtual reality, experiential art, live performances, music festivals, so many other things. And this was pretty true, but this idea really didn't pick up momentum until the 2010s when social media made it easy to share your experiences as they happened, making others want to go spend money on those experiences too. And I swear, while we were all over shopping for fast fashion, we were kind of also over shopping for things to share on social media. So we see the experience economy really picking up, becoming a reality, because as part of our curated lifestyle that we're trying to present on social media, sometimes that means buying stuff, and sometimes it means buying experiences that translate into posts. I know that's a really cynical way of looking at it, but I can't help but look back on the first 10-ish years of social media, basically the time leading up to 2020, and be like, wow, like, that's that's what we were doing, you know? There was not a lot of authenticity left, really, by 2020. Furthermore, 
there had been for years. You know, I mean, like, now all the news articles are about Gen Z. Well, they're also about millennials having a hard time, right? But they're also about Gen Z doing this and doing that and really broad generalizations about a large, large group of people. Millennials, the number of articles that were written about how millennials were killing this and millennials were changing that and millennials are different from their parents because of XYZ. Well, one thing that was constantly being hyped was this idea that millennials prioritized experiences over stuff. I obviously call bullshit on that because people were buying a lot of stuff. I mean, this is the fast fashion generation. But then again, they sure were posting a lot of well-curated photos of experiences on Instagram too. We begin to see retailers adding experiential moments into their stores because they're like, oh my God, it's also the retail apocalypse, right? And now people only want to buy things online. But if there's an experiential element in our stores, people will still have a reason to come to our stores. And as I say this out loud, this sounds so ridiculous, but trust me, one startup I worked for was only able to secure our funding from our investors. And this is a clothing company by agreeing to put a bar in the retail space. So we would have this experiential element, making it a destination, right? Like this is how it goes. And so we see retailers adding these experiential moments to their stores, photo booths, hangout zones, coffee bars, or like in the case of my retailer, a real bar that served alcohol. We see companies like Glossier dropping major money to build out retail spaces that were designed to be shared on Instagram. I went to an Allbirds store in Soho, I don't know, let's say around 2018, and I was just, I couldn't stop laughing, um, kind of bitterly, because the store was about 90, 95% Instagram photo spots and 5%, maybe 10% shoes. And they spent so much money on that space. It seemed so preposterous to me. There were like 10 pairs of shoes in there to look at. Then we also see literal chains popping up that sell these experiences like Museum of Ice Cream and Color Factory and Refinery29 had one. And there were so many others that would pair installation art with Instagram photo ops. Of course, they all also had a big old gift shop at the end, right? The founders of Meow Wolf felt that they had a place in the experience economy. I mean, they'd already learned that with the due return. It was such a hit. And it was different than what Museum of Ice Cream and Color Factory and all these other chains of installation experiences were doing, right? It had, it was more artful and more distanced from commercialism. You know, a lot of these other places had tie-ins with brands. Like you might be like, oh, this is the Target room at the Color Factory. You know, Refinery29 was getting rooms sponsored by all, all these different brands. Meow Wolf wasn't doing that. Meow Wolf was going their own way. In 2014, Diani and Kidlubek attended a business accelerator workshop in Albuquerque. They learned how to write a business plan and how to pitch to investors. And guess what? They won the pitch competition and the prize was $25,000. 
They used part of that money to take the six founders to Disneyland, where they hung out every day from open to close, studying the way the space itself kind of shaped the experience for visitors. They wanted to merge the idea of art and Disneyland back in Santa Fe. I mean, there were definitely thoughts of like, we are going to put Santa Fe on the map. We're going to change Santa Fe. Big, lofty goals. I wouldn't say that they didn't achieve them either. But if you want to merge the idea of art and Disneyland, you need a lot of money. You need a space, you need materials, equipment, a team, safety inspections, and so much more. You need a parking lot. You know, the the things you need, the list just goes on and on and on. And the more you think about it, the bigger it gets and the more expensive it gets. Well, the Meow Wolf team was kind of in luck because there was someone in Santa Fe with really deep pockets. George R.R. Martin, the author of Game of Thrones. Kudlubik pitched the concept to him, and he agreed to buy a bowling alley, spend close to $3 million to renovate it, and then rent it out to Meow Wolf. The team raised the rest of the money it needed via Kickstarter and other Santa Fe patrons with deep pockets. And now Meow Wolf was a full-time job, a real business that paid the artists for their work. It's a dream come true, really. 125 artists were working full-time. We're talking 12 to 14-hour days, six or seven days a week. There's a lot to do here, right? And yet the project was still behind schedule and over budget. So Kudlubek had to go out looking for more money. I love this passage from Rachel Monroe's article. I'm going to read it to you because it really, it really hits on, I don't know, an experience that is familiar to me as someone who's worked for startups. Here's how it goes. Wound incredibly tight, he became particularly touchy about disruptive construction sounds during his walkthroughs with potential investors. And so during those final hectic months of the build-out, everyone would periodically have to stop working and look cheery for the venture capitalists. Uh Uh-oh. Did someone say venture capitalists? Yeah. We know what that means. When the VC gets involved... That money comes with strings attached, and those strings are constant exponential growth and maximum profitability. We've seen how that has impacted all kinds of startups, including Etsy. Wait, is this all coming together right now? Is it finally making sense why I'm talking about this? How would this impact Meow Wolf? And furthermore, how do you combine art, maximum profitability, and exponential growth, and not lose your values or your sense of self? (sighs) I don't know the answer to that question, but I'll tell you what happened with Meow Wolf. So the Santa Fe project called House of Eternal Return was an immediate hit. In the first year, it made three times its projected revenue. It was the most Instagrammed place in New Mexico. And let me tell you, as a person who got married in New Mexico at White Sands National Park, also a big Instagram location, there are so many beautiful places in New Mexico uh, that get posted on Instagram. So if you're coming out on the top there, I mean, you, 
things are going well. Those venture capitalists must have been pretty happy, to say the least. Except that's never how it works when you take that kind of money. And you have to know what to do next. And you have to be talking about it an awful lot, all while asking for more money because you need more money to grow, right? But And you need to grow really fast because the people who gave you the money expect that. So you're just constantly out there asking for money and coming up with plans and making plans and booking plans and confirming plans, negotiating plans and all those things. Fortunately, Lubeck had that kind of drive. He told Rachel Monroe, quote, I felt like it was really important for us to announce a big project and then keep announcing more projects to build the brand, to build the perception that we're a leader in this emerging industry, because I knew there were a lot of different opportunities for investors. And so there was pressure from all sides, even from within, to keep growing and expanding. In 2017, Meow Wolf reorganized itself as a B corporation with Kudlubek as CEO. This is around the time I saw a job listing on LinkedIn for someone to run their merchandise souvenir business. And I was like, huh, is this good or bad? Well, I'll tell you this. That's when I was working at my worst job ever, the feminist startup, and I applied for that job. I was super stoked. And I made it to the final round of interviews, but then I found out that they were also interviewing my best friend who had not had a job since Nasty Gal went under. And even though it was hard, because I was like, this would be a really cool job, I bowed out of the next round of interviews. And you know what? I think I'm okay with that. It would have been pretty cool, but I think it would have been really stressful too, (laughs) although it'd be pretty cool to live in Santa Fe. So I wondered to myself, why is Meow Wolf looking to hire someone at my level to create product for them? This This is different than what I know Meow Wolf to be, but now, you know, here it is 2023, and I know their full story and how much money they received that year. I understand that probably building out retail and selling more stuff was part of the deal. Remember I told you all of these other experiential things like, you know, the museum of ice cream, they had a gift shop. They were selling stuff. You could buy stuff from them online and never even visit their location, right? And they'd build a lot of cachet out of the limited edition-ness of everything they sold. I have no doubt that much like my one job where opening a bar in the store was part of the strings attached to the money, the money coming from Meow Wolf, this one of the strings attached was build out retail, no doubt. In 2019, two years later, the company raised $158 billion from 87 investors, which is not an insignificant amount of money. If you're taking that much investment though, you gotta be growing really, really fast. And so the new projects kept coming. In 2021, Omega Mart opened in Las Vegas. And I got to tell you, it is incredible. I went there, I think in 2021, maybe early 2022. Um, I took one of my coworkers. We had such an incredible time. We were there for hours and hours. But I will tell you one thing that struck me about it. And man, it was amazing. Like the details, just it was an entirely immersive experience. Cannot recommend it highly enough. What struck me about it is, wow, there's a lot of stuff for sale here, like aisles 
of merch, so much merch, but a lot of it was really clever and interesting and kind of existed within one part of the exhibit, for lack of a better noun. So I didn't mind it as much, but I was definitely struck by how much stuff was there, right? Next, just later that year, Convergence Station opened in Denver. I've really wanted to go to that one. I've heard amazing things about it. The Real Unreal, the one here in Texas that I went to last weekend, opened this year, and a new space is under construction in Houston right now. Other projects along the way were announced and then dropped, including a hotel in Phoenix and another space in D.C., and I'm sure there are plenty of other things in the works. And like a lot of projects, mm, corporations, uh, that pair art with big money, things start to get weird, maybe even a little controversial. In 2019, writing about the potential of a Meow Wolf Hotel opening in Phoenix, Aaron Joyce wrote for art publication Hyperallergic, the problem with Meow Wolf is that it is a supreme act of late-stage capitalism disguised through the collective's mantra of the underdog as art savior. And you hear that and you think, well, she's on to something there, but also, <sighs> why can't art ever play nicely with capitalism? Or why can't capitalism ever play nicely with art? Or I don't know. Anyway, let's take a time out here so I can explain why I was motivated to talk about Meow Wolf this week. So... It's not just because I went last weekend. It was because my experience with the new space, it was not good. It was super overcrowded. And that's a problem in an experience that requires spaces and time to explore all the details, right? So I didn't even get to fully understand what the story was, because that's the thing about all Meow Wolf experiences. There's a whole narrative and clues and problems to solve. And it's sort of like a game almost. It's really so fun when you can immerse yourself in it. And of course, you know how I'm always looking at things, like taking a step back and putting on my like buyer's hat or whatever. I look at this being so overcrowded and I say to Dustin, I think this is because they have revenue targets that they can't hit without overcrowding and overselling tickets. And no one's thinking about the relationship between like customer satisfaction and headcount. They're really just focusing on the relationship between headcount and revenue targets, right? And my guess immediately was like, this place is overcrowded because Meow Wolf took a lot of investment. I mean, they had to have, if you saw the space, it was really expensive looking. They took money. They had to promise a certain revenue target, you know, they had to promise a certain level of profitability and they can't get there without overcrowding, right? Also, it was expensive. It was $65 for each of us to go. Um, and I didn't mind spending that at the time because I was like, it's our special day. It's our anniversary. And Omega Mart was so incredible. It was well worth whatever we spent to get in there. But we're not talking about a cheap thing to do. And that price also made me wonder if I'm spending $65 to do this and I, it's too crowded and I can't enjoy myself and really immerse myself in the experience 
the fact that the price is what it is and the crowd is what it is, is also a symptom of VC money, you know? It also had like a weird, slick Disneyland vibes. Like the experience itself was really packed and didn't feel that big. Um, But there was so much large other space for retail and a coffee shop and other things. And it just felt inauthentic. I mean, the humongous gift shop really struck me. There were a lot of clothes in there, a lot of other things that didn't really like, I don't know, it was disappointing for me because at Omega Mart, everything really tightly, it was like part of the exhibit itself, right? which is like ostensibly a grocery store in the front and then all this other stuff in the back. I hope I'm not spoiling it for you by telling you that, but the merchandise was part of the grocery store and it looked like groceries. Um, and so it didn't feel, it felt organic, right? Uh, and special. Um, the gift shop at the Meow Wolf and Grapevine Mills was just huge and full of merch, but not really, like nothing felt special or curated. And it was expensive for sure, but it, I don't know. It it wasn't good. And then I was like, okay, well, like, who made this stuff? Like, where did they get it? Of course, I had a lot of questions about that, too. And I was like, okay, move on. Amanda, you can think about this later. The whole thing, it just felt weird and disappointing. Like, we were being crammed in like sardines. We didn't get the full experience. We spent a lot of money. They were trying to get more money from us as we left. And it just, yeah, it felt inauthentic. It felt almost like a betrayal, which is melodramatic, but it just felt like, oh, wow, Meow Wolf isn't what I thought it was. We went out for Indian food afterwards, and we talked about it. Like, what was this enshittification of Meow Wolf that we had just experienced? I have a bad feeling about it, I told Dustin. I told him everything I'd been thinking about while we were there. I think there's VC money involved, I mean, of course there was VC money involved, but the experience had that vibe, maximum profit and cutting corners. And the thing is like you go to Disneyland and you go in there and you know that it's engineered for maximum profit. It's engineered to get every last cent out of you. And yet everything about it is so thoughtful that you never feel cynical or bad about it. You're like, eh, that's what it is. It's magical here. It's a magic king- magic kingdom, right? Like, I, I'm having a blast. Everything is special and beautiful and clean, and that's okay. You know, like, you expect it, and it delivers. I didn't feel that way about about this new Meow Wolf thing. It was, like, not, not Disneyland, you know, um, even though I know that was their goal. It just had that vibe of, like, maximum profit and cutting corners that you don't feel at Disneyland. One thing I had noticed is that a lot of the installations were copies of those in Santa Fe, and that felt weird too, like we were at a Meow Wolf franchise or chain. And there were a lot less interactive details. Like, once again, if you go to a Meow Wolf other locations and you open a dresser drawer in a room, uh, it's filled with clues and every garment will have a tag in it that sells you something. And there'll be all these, just every last detail is covered. And this wasn't like that. There were rooms, I opened drawers, there were just regular clothes in there, right? There wasn't, I don't know, it didn't feel immersive because nothing felt special or fun or detailed. There were some parts that were literally just like a mural and a blinking light, not I don't know. It didn't have that full, like, wow, I need to examine every last 
object detail and find out what it's hiding or what it's trying to tell me that I got at Omega Mart. It was very disappointing. It just didn't feel right. And I hadn't read Rachel Monroe's article yet, but it turned out I was right because she wrote in 2019, Meow Wolf's artists are also having to familiarize themselves with concepts like value engineering. Not every object has to be a custom sculpture, Kudlubek said. Not every square inch has to be interactive. And that was the thing is that like we went into one of the bathrooms and I was like, oh, I know that card. It's from Ikea. <laughs> you know you know what card I'm talking about. It's the two level one. Anyway, like there were so many things like that where I was like, oh, I opened a drawer and there were just clothes from Target in there. Like it was so odd. And I'm sure it was more affordable. And Kedlubek is right to a certain extent because how do you make art more profitable, right? You make it simpler and you make it scalable, which means you make it repeatable. And in that move, you risk, in fact, you probably will make it less impactful and authentic. And that's, that's what I was feeling. But back to that Indian restaurant. So we sat at the table discussing this and we love a mystery. We love, let's get to the bottom of it. Let's find out what's really going on there. And I said, let's look at the Glassdoor reviews because seriously, guys, that's the best place to start a research journey. It always is. I swear by it because it helps plant the seeds for what you should be looking for. And boy, did that start the research journey for me. That is why you're hearing about it right now. Here's one review. They have fought against the union at every turn, spending millions on lawyers and bragging about sales numbers while telling employees they can't afford to pay a living wage. They lie a lot. They're constantly being sued by former and current employees. So my friends, this is how you use Glassdoor to start your research. Okay, I'm gonna look for articles about Meow Wolf union busting. I'm going to look about issues with lawsuits from former and current employees. I'm going to look up like, how is their business doing? Like, what are people saying about their employment practices? Well, I'll share the articles in the show notes, but indeed, Meow Wolf has been sued by former and current employees for racial and gender discrimination and unfair pay practices in multiple states. And yeah, Meow Wolf tried really hard to shut down employees' attempts at unionizing in all the classic union-busting ways, all of it. Going as far, this is a new one to me, as listing a new HR director position that included the job responsibility of, quote, effectively manage labor union relationships and implement effective union avoidance campaigns in union-free parts of the organization. In other words, we're, we're brazenly looking to hire someone who will prevent our teams from unionizing. Well, the good news is, is that the union effort was successful, but there was a lot of trouble in between and Meow Wolf got into a lot of hot water. And honestly, I mean, the articles are out there, right? I found all kinds of documentation of this in a variety of very reliable news sources. But unless you're like reading, like, I don't know, The New Republic or a local newspaper from New Mexico, you're not going to know about this stuff. And that kind of thing frustrates me so much. Because if I knew that Meow Wolf was engaging in that kind of stuff, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go there, right? And 
I will share all the articles about the lawsuits and the union busting in the show notes, and you can make that decision for yourself. But that kind of thing doesn't sit well with me. Um, that's also why I don't go to Disneyland anymore, because I feel like they treat their employees really poorly. Okay, here's another Glassdoor review. And I'm going to tell you, one, the review that I just read you is from this year. This review I'm about to read you is from last year, but late in the year. And there are many other bad reviews on the Meow Wolf Glassdoor. There are also a lot of reviews that are very obvious, fake, positive reviews, which I have told you all before, maybe not here specifically on the podcast, but definitely on Instagram, that one symptom of a toxic work culture is when you go onto a Glassdoor and there are very obvious fake positive reviews that someone was asked to write, perhaps the HR team themselves wrote, that feel very unrealistic in comparison to all of the other reviews. And not all reviews on Meow Wolf are bad, right? There are some that are like, here's what's good, here's what's bad. That is a legit review. When someone shows up and was like, this is the best job ever. I can't think of anything about it that I would change. Or they use certain key phrases like, well, it's a startup and we're growing really fast and we're learning as we do it. That kind of stuff always comes from HR or someone else who was forced or asked to write a positive review, right? And they do that to counteract the bad reviews. Here's the thing. I read all the reviews on Glassdoor. All of the bad ones said basically the same thing. And all of them, for the most part, I could back up via research all the claims about discrimination, pay, union busting, even the change in the culture, the change in leadership, all of that stuff I was able to verify. Was it extra work? Sure. But what I'm saying is that the review pattern I saw on Meow Wolf is not unlike some of the really bad toxic companies I've worked for. So here's this other Glassdoor review. Those in charge have completely forsaken the ideals Meow Wolf was founded on. It's profit over people now when it could have been a unicorn company that actually paid artists to make art. The pandemic was used as a smokescreen to gut the company of full-time artists. Now they're just like any other content company hiring contractors to save a buck. They don't respect their union currently. They don't respect their artists. They don't respect their roots. I wish them all the best and hope for the sake of the artists that have worked on exhibits past and future that they continue to be successful. But it would be even better if they could get their heads on straight about how they treat their employees. Once again, if I had read this before we went, I don't think we would have gone. I will tell you, as I followed the chain of reviews in chronological order, I noted that Meow Wolf has changed a lot over the last few years, bringing in a lot of leadership from big corporations, right? People who weren't artists, but were experts in the, in the area of entertainment. And... It happened in a really short time. And I think it's important to remember that like Meow Wolf has not been around that long. We're talking about a lot of really big changes happening over the period of like seven years, eight years, maybe a lot of really big changes. One thing they did, which is like very common in the startup world is that over time, you know, the original CEO could Ludwig, he had to step down and they brought in leadership from companies like Disney and Viacom. In fact, the current CEO comes from media conglomerate Viacom. Um, 
who for a long time, not currently, was the biggest entertainment company in the United States. We're talking about like all forms of media and entertainment. The founding team of six are still involved in one way or another. They're not really like at the top per se, but they're there. Um, The exception, exception being Matt King, who took his own life in 2022. And I'll tell you, I had a good cry today just reading his remembrance on the Meow Wolf website. And I'm not going to link to it because it's a lot, but you can Google it and find it if you would like to read it. It was really touching, actually. So the story of Meow Wolf so far, it raises important questions. And they're questions I don't fully have the answer to. Questions like, can art be profitable? Can creativity be commoditized and profitable while still ethical? Can art and capitalism live in harmony? I don't know. But the quandaries raised by Meow Wolf are not dissimilar from those of Etsy. Can a profitable, successful company form based on many individual makers and small businesses Can community coexist within a corporate structure? And can businesses at that scale truly remain ethical and thoughtful? So far, the answer seems to be no. It becomes even more problematic as the scale of the companies increase, making the individual artists and makers seem even smaller and less significant. I keep going back to that quote from last week that Christy pulled from the CEO about all the sellers just being individual blades of grass. You know, that's the thing. An individual blade of grass is tiny, but when the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands or millions of blades of grass in your yard die and it's suddenly just sand and dirt or something in your front yard, you feel that loss, you notice that loss and you can't help but wonder what the tipping point for Etsy or Meow Wolf or any of these other companies that really rely on individual artists and their talent to flourish, you can't help but wonder what happens when those people give up, get tired, move on. What happens? We've seen it play out time and time again with many startups and platforms and ideas and movements. And it seems good until that drive for constant growth and ever-increasing profits just ruins it all. I don't know what the answer is, but I would love to hear your thoughts on it. So drop me a line at amanda at closehorse.world. Okay, well, with that, I've been talking for a long time. Let's get into my conversation with Christy and Chiara. Is there anything else that you are working on with the Indie Sellers Guild? Oh, yes. <laughs> okay, tell We've me We've had more. a very busy summer. We went from everyone being kind of busy with their own things over the winter and kind of slowly working on projects to things exploding as of July, Um, (laughs) in a good way. Um, So have you been following at all the issue on Etsy? um, And then there was a separate one on Amazon about um, reserve payment policy. Yes. Okay. Tell everybody about this because a friend of mine has been dealing with that recently. 
Okay, Christy, why don't you give the summary? Yes. So, yeah, um, basically, Etsy has a payment reserve policy where in, in the past, it would commonly apply to people whenever they were brand new on the platform. Right. And right. what would happen if you got put on reserve is 75% of what you're earning, you don't see it right away. You just have mm-hmm. to wait to get all of your payments. And it's a nightmare if you're running a handmade business because a lot of times you need that payment to be able to buy your materials. And they're saying, oh, yeah, you can get your payment after your ship. And you're like, but, 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 but I can't make it. What, what are you talking about? So um, that was, though, in the past, it was mostly new sellers. In mm-hmm. May of this year, they did something in their algorithm to where it seemed like it was applying to a bunch of people who have longer processing times or unusual processing times or mm-hmm. something weird with their products where they can't ship via like a standard method, you know, like really heavy stuff or even, you know, really lightweight stuff that customers don't want tracking. They would rather just, you know, have it. So it's like all of a sudden it's these payment reserves are being applied to mostly handmade sellers, mostly people who have like made to order businesses. Suddenly they can't get paid until after shipping. And it's just, it creates like this horrible snowball effect where people like Etsy owes them thousands of dollars. It, It was absolute nightmare for so many people. And yeah, so um, that we wound up, first thing we did was just like collect a bunch of stories from people because we were trying to figure out what's going on because mm-hmm. it's also, um, so the 75% that they that they take, the, mm-hmm. the, the key thing about that is all of your fees and taxes come out of the 25% that's remaining. And since Etsy oh. fees are, well, typically it winds up being around like between like nine to 11%, depending on, cause like there's some fees that are, that are flat and it just like a lot of, a lot of variables. But, um, if there's an offsite ad, then the fees are around 22 to 30%. <laughs> So you wind up owing money to the reserve it, if anything what? at all is out of out of the ordinary. And yes, yes. So there there are people who would make a sale and it would be like, yeah, you owe us money until after this ships. So that is wild. So wait, so if it was like a does does Etsy collect fees from you every month? Is that how um, it works? It's more like um, it's more like uh, at per sale. It's more it's okay. more like it's just like this constantly running total that's happening in your background, and then if if in the background, and then if you have a, a payment schedule that you do, and then whatever fees you owe are taken out of your payment, unless you don't have enough to cover it, and then they're like taken from a credit card. So, oh and God. I'm not, I haven't actually been put on reserve, so I I don't have a very clear understanding of how it would actually work if you know you didn't you know if you were owing money to the reserve like would that come off of your credit card i right. i don't I, th- I think it was more like um so there was people wound up with this thing where they would see in their back end both a reserve and a reserve minimum and then you would say it or it would say that um they need to sell this much more m- more stuff before they can start getting paid and then that like so it's just like mind-bogglingly a complicated ca- accounting math to to even try to wow. figure out why you're not getting paid it was and what we wound up doing is we wound up going because we had a member 
neighbor who was had a really really busy really active shop that was on reserve and and we were like we we like we're in a Discord channel talking back and forth until we finally figured out the math and used it to make a tool um, to kind of help sellers understand, okay, this is where your money's going. Here's why you're not getting paid, you know? Because, wow. <laughs> yeah, with it being, you know, 25% and all your fees come out of it, you know, and it was, it, you know, so frustrating to so many people. But then what wound up happening, because I have been sharing, because there's like a lot of random groups everywhere for the people who are being put on reserve. There's a Facebook group um, for for people that, that was specifically formed over the reserves that I was a part of. And I shared our accounting tool, math tool to that. And a seller from the UK um, commented on my post saying, uh, can, can, can I show this to the Small Business Commission? I, I want to use this to show them why I'm not getting paid. <laughs> And um, so the UK Small Business Commission is basically like the regulatory body for small businesses in the UK, from what I understand. Uh-huh. And then that snowballed into like she wound up whenever she showed that to, you know, showed what was happening in her shop that got UK, the like, like the Small Business Commission, um, Liz Barclay she reached out to a bunch of people in Parliament and got Parliament to contact Etsy and be like, this wow. is not okay. <laughs> wow. So, so yeah, and then that shortly after that happened, plus a whole bunch of bad press with like the BBC and whatever, um, mm -hmm. they and various other UK. It was most most of the coverage. So the thing that made it way 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 worse about UK. So in the US, for the most part, we have tracking. So in order to get your money, you need to have tracking that connects to Etsy. A lot right. of people overseas, though. Etsy hasn't bothered to actually get their tracking to connect properly. And this so what they so were doing, unfair. oh my God, what they were doing with those people is saying, oh, you'll just get your money after 45 days have passed. <gasps> that is so long. Now, you know what is interesting about that is like as a buyer with vendors when we buy shipments from them, you know, whatnot, it's usually net 30, which means we would pay within 30 days. So that is just like beyond unfair. <laughs> for and if for like generally when I would work with like smaller brands, smaller businesses, I would say we'll give you a fifty percent deposit up front and pay you in fifteen days or something. You know, anything we could do to ensure that they weren't like running out of money. But forty five days is like outside the standard for like business as a whole. That is wild. Yes. And so um, Samantha um, Vass is the name of the seller who was in the UK that reached out to the Small Business Commission over there. And what was happening in her shop is she had tracking. The tracking was working. The tracking was connected. But Etsy still said, oh, no, you're not getting paid for 45 days. That it was whenever that happened uh. that the, the UK Small Business Commission was just like, nope, we're going to do something about this. You know, when I hear about things like this happening, especially because it seems like it just started to be a bigger deal kind of out of the blue, it usually means that there's some sort of creative accounting happening to make revenue or cash flow look different for investors. That's what I have so such a horrible understanding of any of that. But there have been a lot of I've seen that sentiment in yeah. a lot of places recently. We've seen a yeah. lot of speculation about like, why did this all of a sudden happen? Um, there's also where it gets even shadier uh, is 
So after all that pressure, uh-huh. Etsy issued a statement, a very vague, a fairly vague statement where they said, we're going to lower the reserve amount for many people. And they did lift the reserve for many sellers and lower it to 30 cent for many sellers, but not all. Some are still at that 75%. Oh, and the reserve in total. So it applies to all orders for 90 days. So you're <sighs> in this weird process where you're not actually getting any of the money up front for 90 days. And that's it's, such a long time too. It feels so unfair. Um, and yeah. they can extend it as long as they want after that. The average is 90, the like standard is 90 days. Um, but right after they kind of issue this, like, okay, we're going to, we heard you. We're sorry that this change caused like these pain points. We're going to address them. We're going to, and they issued some kind of general statements about, um, improving things for like, if you have issues reporting the shipping and things like that. And then we start seeing reports that some U.S. sellers got an email from Etsy saying, are you, we know that starting a new business can be a stressful financial event. It can, you can have cash flow issues. We've partnered with this third party vendor, you lend to get you a loan. Uh, I knew this was coming. I knew it. And Amazon was even more blatant about it because Amazon kind of some like right as this stuff with Etsy was kind of winding down announced that all of a sudden they're just going to, I'm not as sure on the details of this, but as was explained to me, all their sellers were payments would just no longer be given the next day, but in two weeks, which once you're going, like if you, if you know that, that that can be fine. But if you're running a small business and all of a sudden you're mm-hmm. just not going to get any money for two weeks, that's a real problem. Right. Mm-hmm. As this mm-hmm. change happens. And then they also immediately, they have their own lending service and have for a long time. So they also were like, we're going to hold your money for two weeks. Also, we'll give you a loan at 15%. Um, uh, that's a really high percentage. It's a very high one. percentage. Well, you know, this like, and this just goes back to like me saying, like, I think that when a company makes a big change like this without really being clear about it, um, and it seems really sudden, it's always about controlling some sort of cash flow narrative or finding a new way to make money off of people, which is clearly a big part of this is. Uh, back in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, all of these retailers canceled orders that were already complete on factories. I'm sure you ha- all have like read about the pay up movement and some, some retailers ended up paying for that stuff and others did not. But another trick that I specifically remember, you know, Ross, like Ross Dress for Less, their parent company did, but I think also American Eagle's pa- parent company is that in addition to canceling orders, they sent an email out to all their vendors and they were like, hey, so I know right now we have you on net 30 terms paying, meaning that we're going to pay you in 30 days but now we're going to pay you in 120 days. And there was nothing people could do about it. It was either like, oh, well then, you know, we'll cancel the order and then you won't make any money or you will do what we, we, you'll bow to our pressure because you have no choice. Like we have all the power in this situation. And Etsy doing things like this says to me that Etsy has all the power in this situation, even though without its sellers, Etsy does not exist. Yes, exactly. And that leads right into kind of where this story went, because as we were working on this issue specifically with um, the reserve policy on Etsy, you know, there's other 
this other situation going on on Amazon that we're hearing about secondhand. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd heard that from, so the seller that Christy talked about, Samantha, uh, she joined the guild and she told us about how she got in touch with, uh, Liz Barkley, the UK small business commissioner. And, uh, Liz is the one who's been, uh, like she's the one quoted in all of the, uh, articles. And so, mm-hmm. I emailed her being like, hey, we're working on this mostly in the U.S., but we're working on this. We know Samantha. Love to talk about more about what's happening in the U.K. and how we can do more on this. And so Christine and I and Liz Barkley and another uh, person who works at the U.K. Small Business Commission had a meeting where we kind of, it was a really great meeting. We talked about kind of, they told us what had happened on their side in the U.K. We told them what had happened here in the U.S., And kind of ultimately came down to, this is not just an Etsy problem. This is not just a payment reserves problem. This is a widespread issue of these big tech platforms that have so much power over the Mm -hmm. people who use their platform and not, not the customers. I mean, they do have a lot of power over their customers, but that's who they're always trying to please. Right. But the sellers who, again, like you said, that's the business is the people selling on the platform. Right. And yet they have so Mm -hmm. much power over them. And there's so many examples of how they mess with those sellers money. Like it's just rampant in all these different examples. So we're now working to put together a roundtable meeting to talk about how to form a broad coalition to fight back against that issue of the way these big tech monopolies mess with these small independent businesses, money and income, their livelihood. Uh, And it's very quickly gotten nerve-wrackingly above my pay grade of free. (laughs) So um, we've talked to um, the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. They were supportive. We've talked to a trade association for crafters. Liz is inviting members of the UK parliament and journalists at like, and we're like, whoa. Um, So we're going to potentially be working to kind of a, a grassroots activism a movement to to try and do something about this issue because it's just gotten so out of control the degree of power that these companies hold and as we you know i hadn't really thought about it this way because i was like oh there's these platforms that i'm listing them off in my head oh, amazon ebay etsy these and when we were talking to the electronic found Tier Foundation, uh, Catherine from there, she reminded me that eBay owns PayPal and Etsy owns Depop and uh, the music one that I'm forgetting the name of. Like, mm. So it's even fewer companies that you think with even more power because they own so many of the platforms per company. Mm-hmm. Yep. So. Yep. It's, it is. It's like a consolidation of power. I mean, it's, it's monopolizing. When I saw that Etsy bought Depop, I was like, are you kidding me? They already have vintage sellers on Etsy right now. Like it just, I, I was like, I don't, I don't like this at all. This is not going to go well. And I've been hearing stuff from people who sell in Depop that are very similar to the things that you're all talking about with like higher fees and stricter, weirder policies. Like people are getting their accounts 
deactivated for all kinds of different reasons. Um, and some are very unclear. You know, the customer service isn't good or consistent. It's all the same stuff that you're talking about. And I'm just like, gosh, what are they going to buy next? You know, who will buy whom? Like, is Amazon going to buy Poshmark or something? Oh, probably. Probably. Yeah. Um, But yeah. And that's, that's another way that again, they can mess with your money. Like your account can be suspended by accident and error from an AI bot. And it can take you weeks to get a hold of somebody to fix that. And in the meantime, you're can't make any money. (laughs) Um, you know, like that's, and it's the way that, you know, we have, regulations we have standards in other areas but you know if they exist for the internet they're certainly not being applied as needed so you end up with this just kind of not even rampant exploitation although that's definitely going on too but just random like error casualties you know what i mean like so many people are just like cause such financial harm because of like a whoopsie <laughs> on these platforms. <laughs> and that's all like, and there's again, like not even are they never like financially compensated for the harm that must have caused, but there's often like, it's so difficult to get fixed. Like we've talked about with Etsy, kind of like what you were saying, Etsy sellers should be at the top of support. Like at the bare minimum, if you're going to have these policies, if you're going to have AI enforcing policies, because we understand that you kind of have to utilize tools like AI because the manpower required for a person to do all of that is insane. But then you Mm -hmm. need like a a rapid response appeals process for people Mm -hmm. to quickly be like, hey, this happened to me. This is clearly not correct fix it. And with the reserve situation, we we heard it from everybody we talked to uh, that when they contacted Etsy customer support, they were told, we can't tell you exactly why your shop was put in reserve to preserve <gasps> the security of our system. I cannot manually remove it, even if it was done in error. And I cannot tell you what like what you need to do to get out of it so all they would give you is a generalized list of risk factors for why you were put in reserve and a generalized list of suggestions for how to get out and that's all the information you would get wow wow this is terrible I just like, once again, it goes back to like why isn't etsy communicating with the people who really fuel its platform you know like this should have been a bigger conversation. There should have been really clear, clear verbiage about why this would or would not be happening so that people could prepare themselves or protect themselves. But instead, it's just like being blindsided, like once again, right? Um, and I'm still, I'm still reeling from the fact that they never met with anybody about the strike. Like this just feels like such a huge misstep for Etsy. And really indicative of, like, what's happening behind the scenes there. You know? It's really disheartening. It is. And it seems like, I mean, why do companies fight unions so hard even if, like, it's it would be actually 
be not necessarily that financially impactful and be a very good, you know, PR move to be one mm-hmm. of these companies that are, you know, working with their workers. There's a lot, you know, union approval or not what is it? I'm not sure how it's phrased, but like the people that respond, yes, they essentially think unions are a good idea. Is that like an all time high in the U S for like a, it's mm-hmm. like a 60 year high, but I think it's this, I think among, you know, the people that invest in these companies that run these companies, there's this sense of like, well, if we start letting the, the little minions have a say in this place, they'll expect to be able to have a say everywhere. And so there's this just kind of constant, we refuse to engage that you see across the board. Um, you know, not necessarily like a full kit. I'm not trying to like make it sound like a conspiracy theory or anything, but there's just seems to be this attitude of we, we will not participate in communication with uh, essentially the workers. Cause that's, you know, really who we're talking about on these platforms. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it also like really starts at the top and is like a cultural sort of thing. Like, yeah, exactly. You know, oh, over the years, they've had, I mean, I remember the one guy who was the CEO, I think his name's Chad Dickerson. He came from like Nike or something, right? And the current CEO, Josh Silverman, like he's never, he's not from the maker community. He uh, has never really worked in an area like this. Like his experience is like Skype and like Evite. Like he's a tech guy, like a tech CEO. And really what Etsy and any of these platforms that, seem to forget the like human element of it all. What they need is someone leading them who understands the humanity of it all, I think, and isn't looking at it as a tech company, but as looking at it as more of like a community that happens to be like a marketplace. And I think they bring in too many people who like don't even seem to understand like or have that experience in like selling stuff to be honest yeah they're looking at it as a tech company first and i don't i don't know about you but i don't when i think of tech companies i don't think of etsy i don't yeah because that's not really what they're selling i mean i guess the marketplace is the business but they're they're selling access to the sellers and the you know the ease of payment and everything and yeah over and over again we see these policies where we're like on the surf like i see you know we're sitting like we're like you know in guild discord and we're looking at these policies and we're like okay i see how somebody who just is on the internet thought (laughs) this would work Right. But if you actually think it through for people that hand make their stuff themselves, it's nonsense. Um, It doesn't work (laughs) applied. Um, Yeah, we see that all the time. I'm sure Christy has even more examples of that. So after after they have a new policy that comes out, they always give you the survey. Let us know what you think. (laughs) Great. And you you wind up there. There's like the this 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 period time period you start off yeah i'm just gonna tell you everything that i think and you're gonna listen to me and then you get more and more and more sarcastic <laughs> as time goes on and at this point i'm at the stage of yeah you're not gonna listen to me <laughs> do not take survey <laughs> yeah yeah exactly i mean i think it's it's probably you you get disillusioned you know and you start to feel as if there's no hope on the horizon. So I'm really excited about what y'all are doing because you're giving people 
that hope and that belief that like things can get better, you know, if everybody works together. And I do think like, I mean, listen, it is ridiculous to me that Etsy never called y'all out to talk during the strike. I still can't believe that. But there, there was an outcome from it. It was so silly for them to not say, you know, we've been listening to your feedback. We've been thinking about the strike, you know, like to just not, it kind of like not acknowledge it was really silly. But perhaps that was a strategic decision so that you sellers would start ganging up on them again. <laughs> You know, <laughs> to like not let you ha- know you had the power. But the reality is, as individuals, it, it's easy to feel powerless. But when you're all banding together like that, you do have power because Etsy doesn't exist without all of you. Like, yeah, there are a gazillion sellers on there. But as you pointed out earlier in our conversation, how many of those people are really selling much? You know, it's the people who are most in it that like and are really relying on Etsy to run their business that are going to have the most impact when they push back on Etsy. Well, and in addition, Etsy, you know, compared to Amazon, uh, you know, almost everybody shops on Amazon and almost everybody has a bad opinion of Amazon, right? Like no one thinks Amazon's great. Um, (laughs) but, But Etsy, right? Like their whole thing is this, like their whole brand is that it's handmade, that you're working, buying from an actual person, making what they love in their home. Like, so their like reputation is much more vulnerable to a bunch of sellers saying, Hey, that's not what's happening Mm -hmm. than like Amazon. Like if a bunch of Amazon sellers say, Hey, Amazon's terrible. We'd probably all be like, yeah, that makes sense. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we definitely would. Yeah, (laughs) That tracks. Um, But with Etsy, you know, we've a lot of people that, you know, aren't sellers, but shop, they don't, they're not aware of all these problems because of that kind of that branding, that kind of folksy vibe Etsy's Mm -hmm. been working so hard to cultivate. And so that's, I think, part of the reason we've been able to be so you know, have as much success as we've had is because uh, the demographic of Etsy shoppers are quite receptive to hearing what we're saying. Um, you know, you still have the the trick of like getting the word out to them, but when we're able to like it, you know, those BBC articles, the press we had around the strike about the ways that, you know, Etsy's policies are harming those handmade small businesses that is the you know the core of Etsy uh does hurt the brand and the reputation and the trust customers have and so that can make them sit up and listen more than like another platform might yeah yeah I agree I agree If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. 
Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns. Handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed. Made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnic Wear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnic Wear recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnic Wear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre-loved decor and accessories? Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the pewter thimble. We source useful and beautiful things 
and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print-worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home. Responsibly sourced from across Rome, lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans, with something for every budget. Discover more at thepewterthimble.com. Deco Denim is a startup based out of San Francisco, and it sells clothing and accessories that are sustainable, gender fluid, size inclusive, and high quality, made to last for years to come. Deco Denim is trying to change the way you think about buying clothes. Founder Sarah Mattis wants to empower people to ask important questions like, where was this made? Was this garment made ethically? Is this fabric made of plastic? Can this garment be upcycled? And if not, can it be recycled? Sign up at decodenim.com to receive $20 off your first purchase. They promise not to spam you and send out no more than three emails a month, with two of them surrounding education or a personal note from the founder. Again, that's decodenim.com. So is there anything else that you're working on? I mean, you do have your hands full of this stuff. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Um, Those are the biggies. And those have certainly been plenty. We're always then trying to, you know, improve the website, improve, you know, Mm -hmm. community, uh, like the way we run the community, the tools we build. Christy, Christy's the like, Christy does all the tech. And so I'm always like, I want to do this thing. Can we do that thing? And she's like, um, maybe. Or it's like, it's <laughs> eventually. Yeah, that's usually I, the I haven't I figured out how to clone myself yet, but <laughs> but maybe. Um, and then um a lot of, you know, in my in my spare time, which is such a joke. Um when I have a, a second that I'm not, uh, so there's an active deadline. Um, I've been doing a lot of just kind of looking, looking at sources of funding, looking at ways to set up the organization to be kind of more sustainable long-term. Because even though we're a, a nonprofit, you know, we're also new and kind of uh, subject to the same struggles of any startup as you're building an organization. And uh, while Christy and I really love uh, working on this, and while we do have other team members, both in leadership and people volunteering uh, in general, you know, the bulk of the time-sensitive day-to-day stuff is done by Christy and I as volunteers, and we both know that we can't keep that up indefinitely. So, right, um, right. Oh, yeah, merch. Merch is coming up. Uh he finally, uh, speaking of money, give us money for pretty things. Um, <laughs> please, a lot of please on there. Um, but we finally got, um, uh, we found a union co-op uh, print shop in the U.S. that will um, launch a little merch store for nonprofits with uh, three items uh, for free. And uh, you can have all different artwork and stuff. So we're doing, uh, as soon as Christy has the time, as with everything, um, <laughs> we're going to have a form up. We've got the instructions all written out, slogans. We did like votes on slogans and things. And um, 
people can design and submit artwork that will then, uh, you know, have like a fun championship, like voting competition for the winning designs and we'll promote everyone's links who submit. It should be a lot of fun. Um, it's a fun thing to work on. And then we'll have, um, a pack of stickers, a t-shirt, and a tote bag all uh, for sale up in our merch store. So, Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I think it's really important. Just, I want to call out it again is like, you're all doing a lot of, a lot of work for free, which, you know, listen, that's how Close Horse works for me too. <laughs> right. And I think it's important to call out that while it, it is what it is because we care so much about what we're doing. This kind of working for free is not sustainable in the long term because we all live in a world, right, where we have to pay rent and utilities and for healthcare and food and all of that, right? So I really hope that more and more people get involved and you can figure out a way to make it work financially and also to give you work-life balance. You know, it's because it's just, it's not sustainable. And I see so many organizations burn out because of that. And I really hope that we're at a time where people are starting to understand the value in the work that people do and are willing to help support it so that it can continue. And that would include absolutely what you're all doing with Etsy because you really are helping people have a better life, you know? Yeah, fully agree. It's unfortunately, um, like within the organization itself, everyone, you know, seems to recognize that like, yes, everyone's doing this because they care, but people should be paid appropriately as soon as possible. And so there isn't any kind of like weird vibes of like, oh, but like, why would you get money for this? It's very much like, yeah, as soon as there's money, people should be paid for all the time they're putting in. Let's do that. Totally. Totally. I did all this reading about buy nothing like a a few months ago. And where that has been facing a lot of trouble is that most people in the organization do not feel that there should be any money involved at all and that everyone should work for free. And that's just like, like the membership itself believes that. Mm. And so of course, like when I think about how these things can be unsustainable, I think of buy nothing right away where people are working so hard for free, you know, and you can't forever. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, because I we've got the local buy nothing groups here. And it's such an interesting idea of like, you know, in the group itself, it's like we are not engaging in like commerce at all. But then somebody mm-hmm. has to moderate that group. And then somebody, you know, there's somewhere someone higher up somewhere who has to do work of kind of keeping the organization going. And it like there's lots of little details that until you try and run one of these things you don't know about (laughs) um right and even if i don't know if the buy nothing is like an actual formed organization and more just kind of an idea but like yeah if you're an organization like you have to file paperwork with the government and you have to keep your what right you have to pay for your domain name if you want to have a website like there are exactly because you while it's, I love that idea, you can't actually exist entirely commerce-free if you still need things from the rest of society. So Right. No, no, totally. That Buy Nothing is like a big organization, mm-hmm. and they face all of those things. They have sort of like regions, people who are managing regions, who are managing areas, who are then like, you know, in the individual groups and like 
the moderator in my neighborhood by nothing group, I mean, I can tell she works really hard because she has to deal with stuff for sure. Like difficult situations all the time and people fighting a lot. (laughs) So it's a lot of work, right? Yeah. And I reading about them and learning more about their organization was actually really, I don't know, it was really illuminating for me because it helped me start thinking about how we all continue working on these things we're passionate about without just like breaking ourselves down. Like where where do we where do we hit that, right? Like where do we change it? And I'm glad that you're all like really mindful of that already. That's really awesome. And I think you've already demonstrated that the work you're doing is really valuable and has impact and you can show that. And so I ho- I hope that it just continues to build, you know? It's amazing. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. And as far as um, burnout, burnout support, one of the things that we tend to do in our organization that really helps a lot with that is it's just like there is an unwritten rule that life comes first. And if there's like an ISG related deadline that suddenly has to be put two weeks in the future, it's okay. You know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I guess, you know, one of the questions I have for you is obviously like people who are selling on Etsy are going to be so excited to hear about what you're doing and to get involved. But is there anything that people who are just customers of Etsy that are like actual shoppers, anything that they can do to support what you're doing or to make better decisions about who they support on Etsy? So the first thing is they can, and I, uh, after we're done, I will send you the links for everything. They can take the survey because we also want customers information. And there's a section at the beginning where you say, like, do you sell or do you buy? Um, So they can take the survey and then they can sign up. um, They can sign our petitions. So we've got a sign up form to support that cool online act uh, where like, if you sign up for that, it just means that when we have updates or calls to action, like, email your senator. We'll send out in an email. We'll give people templates and very specific instructions. You don't have to figure anything out. Um, So there's that. And then they can sign the petition against the reserves policy on Etsy. And we will probably use that when we, if like after this big meeting about the kind of broader effect that platforms have on people's money, um, you know, that's kind of the email list we'll be contacting for that. Um, when we have cute, you know, shirts, bags, and stickers, please buy one. Um, <laughs> I'm very excited to see all the designs that everyone comes up with. We had a lot of fun making, yeah, doing the slogans. And then in terms of supporting actual, like, being more conscientious and how you support uh, sellers, um, you know, we don't say stop using Etsy uh, because Mm -hmm. people need Etsy, right? (laughs) Right. Um, Right. Yeah. But making sure that one, you can always look to see if people sell um, on their own website uh, because they're going to pay less fees. They're often trying to increase traffic to their own website. So um, if you find someone, you know, you can look for their own website to shop on. Uh, Liking or commenting on people's like posts on social media helps boost it in the algorithm, gets it more seen. Um, Just being understanding in like, if something's a little delayed, like this is not Macy's sending your thing late, (laughs) right? right? This is not Ross Dress for Less. This is most likely 
Um, you know, because we know that Etsy demographics, this is most likely a woman working from her home who had any number of things come up. And that's why your item got shipped a day late. Uh, knowing that if there is a problem, the seller is most likely going to try so hard to make it right and work with you. If, if you can be, you know, understanding, um, leaving good reviews, often it's the people who are mad who take the time to leave reviews, but those good (laughs) reviews make a huge difference. Uh, Mm -hmm. things like that can make, uh, our ways to kind of take those little extra steps to really help out the small sellers. Yeah, absolutely. I can I I will also agree like leaving a review is really impactful knowing now how the system works and also I just see the bad reviews that people leave on the Etsy subreddit and I'm just like why did you do that? Or why did you leave a four-star review when you love the item? I don't understand. <sighs> leave a five-star review everyone. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's actually a whole thing that people don't realize that like they think 1 through 5 is like a full scale and so if you liked it, but it's not the absolute best thing you've ever seen, you should leave four because it wasn't perfect at five. And it's like, no, no, no. Five is standard unless you were unhappy. And then it's anything lower Right, is how the algorithms treat it. And with Star Seller, if you get too many four-star reviews, you could lose it, wind up on a payment reserve. Like so oh, many bad things can God. happen to you if you don't get 100% five-star reviews. I think it's honestly like, you know, all the years in my career where I would have to write performance reviews for people on my team, you know, it'd be like a one through five rating and you would be told in the like training for writing these reviews that you should only give someone a five star like rarely and only if like you're going to promote them soon. And so you get in your head that like, I mean, I only leave five star reviews for, for Etsy sellers or anything I buy for the most part, but like you get into this head that, oh, five has to be this level of perfection that will only, uh, you will only encounter one time in your life. So you better hold on to that five until then. But that's not how Etsy sees it. So just give the five. Trust me. Trust me. It's fine. (laughs) And then I can't believe I forgot. Of course you can join the guild, obviously, um, as the things you can do. Um, It's totally free. Anyone can sign up as an ally member, which, uh, so including customers that just takes like an email and a password to log into the website and then you have access to all our you know community only stuff you can come to meetings you can uh see all the fun stuff on the on the back end um and then seller members it's just a short application where we ask for some behind the scene photos so we know you know that you're actually making designing or curating your stuff and again it's mm-hmm. it's free and it's mostly just like taking that little extra step to join what it does is then when we send a letter of support out to every senator on the commerce list as the Indie Sellers Guild saying, no, don't listen to what Etsy tells you sellers want. We know what sellers want. We've got a bigger number of sellers and shoppers behind us, and it gives us more legitimacy and weight when we fight on your behalf. That's great. Yeah, I'm going to join right after this. I think Thank you. <laughs> um, so one thing I just wanted to ask you, because I was th- it came up in my mind when you were talking about reviews. Uh, what's this? I don't think it works anymore, but there was this like Etsy Karen checker or something like that. Have either of you ever used that? Yeah, I haven't. I haven't ever, but I'm very familiar with it because uh, Reddit lurker extreme. Yeah, same, um, same. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, um, so what that used to be is there used to be the Etsy API used to allow you to pull 
the review history left by a buyer. Mm. And what winds up happening as as a seller is it depends on your customer demographic because it's it mm-hmm. like my customers are all mostly five star reviewers, right. you know, like the type the type of people that f- yeah, five star unless I'm unhappy. But there are people who are four star means I'm completely happy. And there are also people who will shop on Etsy specifically to try to get a free item from somebody and, ah. and you know, do like extortion like you. <laughs> You do have, they're not, they're like in, I'm so lucky that my customers are 100% amazing. I have never had Mm -hmm. a a person like that, but you you hear about it. And so what sellers would do who, you know, if they had been burned before by one of those nightmare customers is they would go on like care. It was Karen check and um, Etsy check. There were actually two of them. And yeah. And so they would go on one of those websites and look at the person's review history. Um, That was one of the recent changes they made it to where you couldn't see that like you couldn't pull that information via api anymore and now it's even gotten to the point where you can't even look at the customer's profile to see (gasps) what kind of reviews there's like no way to see the history other than the the one way that you can almost sort of still do it is search for the buyer's name in google and do reviews and you might see a couple recent ones that way but yeah there's there's no way so now if you're if you sell something in an area where there tends to be those unscrupulous buyers you're kind of screwed wow that is so interesting to me that etsy shut i mean i knew etsy shut it down because i saw like you know yeah lurking on subreddits but i feel like they intentionally shut that down because maybe people were canceling orders on customers Yes. Yes. That's exactly what if you if it was a customer that because like if you think about it as a seller, um, losing star seller. So if something if you get a bad review, you lose star seller for um, three months. Yeah, in the last three months. So um, and so, you know, it depends on how slow your shop is, you know, it's because what whatever the math works out to 95% of how many orders, you know, and um, and so so like because of that danger it's like and and whenever you lose star seller you stop being featured anything you're in danger of being put on a payment reserve you're wow. there's just so much that's connected to that that it, it it's better to just not make a sale if it comes with that danger so so yeah there were a lot of people that were you know if they saw it was it was one of those type of buyers but one of the things that they did do that they changed it around the same time there's um something called the purchase protection protection policy okay which um that is like you know, basically a, <laughs> a no holds no holds barred no questions asked refund guarantee for anything purchased on Etsy but what people don't know is that pretty often those refunds well no, I wouldn't say pretty often cuz we're talking about all of Etsy but like there is a long list of excuses Etsy uses to take those refunds out of the seller's pocket <laughs> And so, like, including things like your order total was over 250. So that means it's not covered. The buyer can request it. A bot will auto refund them and you're out the total amount of your order. And and there's like no return required, too. Wow. And the Karen check, Etsy check, that change happened very shortly after the purchase protection policy, very shortly after people were really starting to report what was going on with that. People were saying, uh, like, you know, custom wedding dress designers that have 
no re you know got had a thousand dollar dress refunded to the buyer when you know and not even getting the dress back and just like nightmare nightmare stories coming out and then that was whenever that that change was made only a couple months after that wow wow yeah i mean i just I'm glad you're all working on all this stuff because it just feels like, I mean, I hate using this word, but it all feels really unfair. It really does. Um, and it's got to be just making it harder and harder to make a living as a maker. And like, once again, going back to like work being sustainable in terms of like supporting you and also being sustainable from a time, energy, health standpoint, what Etsy is doing is making it harder for this kind of work to be sustainable for people. Yeah. And it's every time one of these new changes come out, it's, it's so bad because you know that you could probably, if you could just like not worry about it, it and you would, you know, waste less time and energy, but it's like, it's all this time sunk into, okay, okay, what do I need to do to try not to get burned by this new policy, you know? Uh, so frustrating. I mean, just even like listening to it as an outsider, I just, like if I put on my business person hat, I'm like, none of this makes any sense. It just, it's so foolish. And it goes back to like the wrong leadership, I think at Etsy right now. Yeah, I actually, I actually had my first because I, whenever they came out with that, and it was basically anytime you make a sale above two hundred and fifty dollars on Etsy, you're in danger of being out your money if the buyer complains. So I just took everything in my shop that was above two hundred and fifty off. I put it all on my website, and it's all but smart. Um. If somebody buys more than one item, the order total can be over that. And I had I had my first order like that kind of recently, and it was an order to Italy. And I was just like, oh, oh, gosh. Okay, okay. It's like, uh, you, you've never had a problem before. You're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. But you know what? I know. Let, let's come up with an excuse to message this person so we can kind of get a feel for if she's nice or not. <laughs> And I wound up doing that, and she seemed like she was nice. So I was like, okay, I can relax. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, what a thing to worry about. Like, 250 I mean, listen, like, someone can give me $250 right now. I'd be happy to get it. But, like, in the grand scheme of things, $250 is not much for Etsy to protect. But it is certainly catastrophic for a seller to be out that. And I just, like, I can't believe that's what the threshold is or that there's a threshold at all. Yes. Yeah. Because I'm not accustomed to that as a normal yeah, thing. That's, well, that's where my thing is. It's like if they're going to offer basically the equivalent of a free pizza guarantee for all products sold on Etsy, they need to cover it. It shouldn't come out of our pockets under any circumstances. Well, and it, it's <laughs> when you really get into the, the nitty gritty of it, it's so like weird because on the surface, it's like, Okay, if an item arrives not as described in the listing, damaged or never arrives at all, Etsy like will give you a refund. Um and Etsy will pay for it. But then the list of like except if is like very long in particular, like it includes the over 250 if you didn't use Etsy's shipping service, if you didn't put this like there's a there's a lot of little details you have to do to like actually qualify. So we definitely have run into sellers who like thought their package if got refunded, like they'd be covered where Etsy would pay for the refund that it was not. And they were surprised. And what I find particularly frustrating is again, it's back to that like weird dynamic and like 
this power imbalance of, oh, this is supposedly just a platform where I run my small handmade business as I want. And I can say absolutely no returns ever for any reason. But Mm -hmm. if Etsy determines differently, they don't have to abide by that. Like you might like, what is the point of the seller's fund policy if it can be overwritten by Etsy? And for any reason, (laughs) you know, at any time, like where's the, I just, there's no protection for sellers, it feels like. And, you know, honestly, like I saw this happen with even eBay over the years where in the beginning, like they really protected sellers from being able to like, you know, not lose product and get their money and not get scammed. But then over time it was like, okay, well now you can't, you can't leave rev- you can't leave ratings for people who don't pay and now people can not pay infinite numbers of times and that's okay too and and now you can't block someone from being able to shop from you and like you know on and on and on it was like now we just take the customer side all the time instead of the sellers even though the sellers are the real customer of this platform and i feel like that's the direction that etsy has gone as well where they're just like any you know whatever you guys want to come in it's like if someone if target was like hey you guys can come into store you can start fires, tip stuff over, do whatever you want. We don't care. Just buy something. Um, well, maybe Target would let that happen, actually. I don't know. But it just seems like the shoppers can do whatever they want on Etsy, and it's fine. Um, much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's really, really unfair. Um, well, I had such a great time talking with the two of you today. Are there any, like, final thoughts or anything you would like to, you know, end with, share with everybody? Get off your chest. <laughs> For me, what I would like to share is that, you know, everyone is aware things have been rough for several years now, right? Like in the world, (laughs) we all know it's been bad. (laughs) And I think that um, it's really easy for things to feel very hopeless, right? Like you see the problems, you see these power imbalances and that imbalance seems just so vast, right? The difference between those Mm -hmm. who have the power and you feels so huge. What can you even do about it? And that's... But that's one, a very hard feeling to live with and two, prevents anything that can be done from being done. And I'm not trying to say that, you know, oh, with just a little bit of effort, we can change the world. Cause that's not true. It takes a lot of effort. But the fact is, is that when you really start doing it, not only has the guild, the Indie Sellers Guild had far more success in its first official year than I would have thought we'd had. Like, Mm-hmm. we Christy and I just keep like texting each other being like how did we get here um, and then being really excited <laughs> and then being like oh my gosh do we know what we're doing no but we're gonna pretend really really well um <laughs> and so not only can you have more success than you think especially if you can find those the places where you have the best leverage but m- really the reason I keep giving away my free time is not because I, I think that I'm going to be able to make such a big difference. I hope I am, but it's because Mm -hmm. 
it lifts that feeling of hopelessness, right? Like you feel like you're Mm -hmm. in a community with other people who care and are trying. And at least you have people on your side. Now you've got people who have your back and who understand and you can talk with and laugh with and share ideas and who know what's going on. And that in itself is really valuable. And so I would just really encourage people, if you don't, you know, join our organization, join something like something local, something anywhere to have that, you know, positive feeling of community. Because I think that's the way our world is structured kind of strips community out of everything (laughs) in seeking profit. And that is what I see everyone craving. And I think more even than like changing the world, it can just help you to feel like you're trying and doing something. Yes. I agree with everything you just said. It's so true. I mean, I think that is why I do the things that I do because it helps me feel like the world can go on. Yes, you know? exactly. And you know, whatever. So you, when you asked that question about final thoughts, I had a final thought too, and it was almost the same. What is <laughs> That's why you two work yes. together. <laughs> yes. Well, so my, my, it's basically like, I remember as Etsy, as I've just been in this, this nightmare slide on Etsy from 2006 all the way up to 2022, <gasps> it was like, I felt alone. Everything that happened, it was like, I I have to be the only, like, there's just something about being a online seller in the platform economy that is just so isolating. You're just, you're behind a computer screen right. all day, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and yeah. And, and then whenever, since the, for me personally, the, the personal thing for the, I'm not alone anymore. And that's like, <laughs> that in and of itself is a miracle. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I agree. There is something so powerful about community with like-minded people who are working on the same things, who have the same fears and concerns and worries as you. It, It makes it easier to go on and it gives you strength and hope. And I, I totally, I'm so glad that all of you have found one another. You know, I'm so glad I've found all the people I've found on the internet. I'm glad I'm meeting yes. you. Yes. You know, like, and really yeah. helpful, and then, know? yeah, every time you find somebody else, you're like, oh, there are more people out there. And that's why I think so much of, you know, the work we do in the Guild has ended up focusing on ways to to keep gathering those people and helping them find each other. Because once you start looking, you're like, look at all these people out here doing amazing things that care about the same things I do. They just don't know any of the other people exist. Um, How do I help get together? How do I help everyone else find them? You know, things like that. And yeah, we've been so lucky in how the leadership of the guild has played out. You know, we were all full strangers that found each other on the internet and just cared about this. And we've really had like no drama, which is kind of incredible. Wow. That's awesome. I know. (laughs) Every now and then, like I, you know, one of us will post something kind of stressed sounding in the heat of the moment. And then everyone will be like, are you okay? And then we'll be like, awkward giggling. You're right. I was a little heated when I, when I typed that out. I actually just have this concern. And then like 
it's fine. Um, yes, there was actually <laughs> so during our law our live launch, we were we were we were, like did this whole entire live stream on platforms and um our Samantha, um our our head of research and also um the, Dr. Samantha Close, she was actually helping us stream it. And we're all in different time zones and the time zone like like she she had her wires crossed and thought that it was a completely different time. <laughs> So oh, no. she thinks she's arriving like 45 minutes early when she's really arriving 15, 15 minutes late. And, and we're all like, Sam, Sam, oh. Oh, there you are. oh, you're okay. We were afraid that you got. And she's like, wait, what? It's. And then like everybody just like busts up laughing. And and then like after, so after the, the, the oh my goodness, okay, let's get this going as quickly as possibly can. Um after that she she says, you know, I, I really love love this group because all conflict is resolved through awkward giggling. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Wow, that's so awesome. I'm so excited to see about what y'all do next. And I think you definitely have to come back on the show again and tell us what you're working on and how it's going. Um, because I know I know this is something that everyone who listens to Close Source really cares about. And also, like, anything related to unionizing anyone, I want to hear about. <laughs> Thank you so much for inviting us on the podcast. I, uh, you know, when you reached out, and then I went and listened to your Etsy episodes. I was like, oh, I'm so excited to have found this podcast. This is fashion plus labor politics. That's my thing. Like, it's kind of the same. I was like, oh, yes, I needed something new to listen to. Great. Yay. Well, I'm glad so, to hear that. I'm glad. Yeah. I, yeah. I felt like weird. I was like, so yeah, here's like some, I don't know, like eight hours of me talking that you should listen to in preparation. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, awesome. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to Christy and Chiara for spending time with me. It's such a good time. I'm actually going to be doing an Instagram live with Chiara this week on Wednesday, where we will be talking about some more stuff that the Indie Sellers Guild is working on. And of course, we'll be answering some of your questions. So keep your eye out for that. In the meantime, go join the guild. I did it. It took like five minutes, not even, probably two minutes. It gets you access to all kinds of other information about what they're doing and how you can support them and why these things matter. I'll share the link to that in the show notes along with links to other resources and actions for you. Okay, well, I'm going to cut this off here because I've been talking for a long time now and I have, I'm in another round of allergies or COVID. Pretty sure it's allergies, but my throat's kind of scratchy. So we're going to call it for the week. One last thing is please don't forget to get your small business audio essays to me. I have only received one so far. So naturally, I'm assuming that Clothes Horse is a failure and all of the other fun spiraling my brain likes to do. So just send it to me so I have it. The deadline is 11-1, and you can find all the details on Instagram or in last week's episode. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse, written, researched, edited, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating, maybe even a review on Apple Podcasts, but most importantly, 
tell your friends. That's the most important part, seriously. If you'd like to support my work financially, there are many ways you can do that. You could take advantage of the Apple Premium subscription, which gives you access to all of our archives, but also just lets you support something you believe in and love. You can also learn more about other ways to support me in my Instagram profile and at patreon.com slash podcasts. Last but not least, thanks as always to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music and audio support and for seriously dealing with like every plumbing problem that could ever happen in a 24-hour period in our house this weekend. It has been very stressful. <laughs> Hopefully we'll all be able to take a shower tomorrow and we'll feel much better. <laughs> All right. Talk to you all next week. Bye.